Well, if there's any part of the Christian message that's familiar to our community, it's got to be this one, the Christmas story. Lots of people come to carols events and to Christmas sermons, even from different cultural and religious backgrounds that really know ever go to church otherwise and who know very little about Christianity other than the stuff here. You know, they've heard it many times, the old story of angels and shepherds and no room at the inn and how Jesus was born in a manger and all those kind of things. And even then it's not a particularly deep knowledge of those stories. It's it's not well thought out. Uh, perhaps because Christian preachers tend to go really quick at Christmas time. I think for a couple of reasons. One, because they think they need to dumb it down uh, because these people are here, at least we can get something of the Christian message without them tuning out. And so we go really, really quick and just say that the really, Jesus has come to save. Yes, that's great, isn't it? But the second real reason is the preachers just want to get home to their own family celebrations. And so they make a short one for Christmas. So you get Christmas sermonettes that tend to pick up one scene or other from the Christmas story and they, they sort of allegorize it. There was no room in the inn. Have you made room for Jesus in your heart? It kind of turns the whole thing into a quaint fairy tale. Something that's nice and familiar. It gives us comfort when we hear. It gives us that feeling of nostalgia, but it's not really something to be uh, taken deeply to heart. It's not something that seriously challenges my life not something that has ramifications, which is what Matthew is claiming, has ramifications, the coming of Jesus, not just for Israel, but for the world and for every individual life within. It has ramifications, huge ramifications for you and for me. This is the turning point in all of history. Last week, we saw that incredible claim as Matthew started by with uh, Jesus' genealogy, his family tree. Uh, he, he was putting it out there that in the coming of Jesus was the fulfillment of all of God's plans and purposes. For here on this earth is the heir of Abraham and the heir of King David. They come to bring God's blessings and not just to Israel, but, but to all the nations of the earth. Uh, come to bring his blessings to a world in rebellion, a world that's in slavery to fear and to death. Not not to uh, Israel in slavery to Rome, but bring God's blessings to this world. Come to bring, in fact, the new genesis, a new start to bring God's rest, to bring the year of Jubilee that the Old Testament spoke about, to bring God's kingdom and to bring it for anyone, for Jew, Gentile, for sinner or for saint. And the rest of Matthew's biography of Jesus, he, he sets out to prove it, that Jesus is the one, he is the heir, he's the one coming in fulfilment of the scriptures, he, he is the Christ who would come and rule on David's throne forever and bring blessing to all nations. And though he starts with uh, very familiar things that we might recognise from the Christian story, uh, the Christmas story, all of them have something that's very unexpected in them, something that... Once you stop and do not just the kind of nostalgia, yes, we're familiar with this story, it really is striking. So don't just fall back into the old nostalgia as you think about this babe in arms in a manger and certainly don't let your familiarity with what we're going to hear today breed any sort of contempt in your life. 
we're focusing this morning on uh, four scenes that Matthew has of Jesus' childhood from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 17 right through to the end of chapter 2, which, which actually covers several years of Jesus' childhood, but which we kind of in our nostalgia compress down into just what seems like one night, the Christmas night story. But each scene is different, and but they all have something in common. Uh, they have a few things in common. Central to each one of them, there is a dream. There's also, we're told, a fulfilment of a prophecy. But then there's also a radical twist as you go back and look at that prophecy and it's not at all what you might think it was saying. And so there's a dream, a prophecy and a twist. Now we're going to spend longer on the first scene just so I can show you what I mean in more detail but then we'll kind of breeze through the other three scenes. The first scene involves Joseph and Mary and the scandal surrounding Jesus' birth. Uh, We heard it read before how Mary was betrothed to Joseph and Yet she was found to be pregnant and Joseph wasn't the dad. Now that's a scandal. It's a scandal even in today's world with its permissiveness. Uh, but think how much embarrassment and difficulty that was going to cause for Joseph back then in the midst of a very conservative religious community. Uh, embarrassment amongst the society, embarrassment in his family. And Joseph's particularly embarrassed because the child's not his. I mean, it'd be one thing if you know, they kind of got pregnant, you know, a few weeks before they were married. But, but that's not what's happening here. He knows this isn't his child. There's been no sexual relations. But he's a righteous man and he doesn't want to publicly expose Mary and, and bring disgrace to her. And so in his mind, he plans a quiet divorce, thinking that'll make the problem go away and be good for everyone. Now, how's that going to protect her integrity? Uh, and, and, and how can he even divorce her when they're not yet married? Uh, well, it's a divorce because Joseph and Mary were betrothed. It's stronger than our engagement of today where you kind of say, hey, do you want to? And they go, yeah. No, this is a binding contract. It's a family arrangement. There's been a legal, uh, a legal thing established that this marriage will happen. They will be the family. And so he has to go through a whole legal process to get out of the marriage. It's a divorce. How is that going to protect her reputation? Surely it's to protect his own reputation. And surely a single mum's going to be even more noticeable and conspicuous and more scandalous than a baby bump in a wedding dress. But I suspect the answer to that is that Joseph presumes quite naturally that that the other father is still around, that there's another man involved. And so my guess is that he thought by breaking the betrothal, he, he was clearing the way for, for Mary to be married to this other fellow, that they would kind of make it all happen and he wouldn't get in the way. I think he, that's where his integrity shows through. But that's where the first dream comes in. It's in verse 20 of Matthew 1. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So that's the dream, this vision encounter that Jesus has. But but notice, Joseph has, but notice a couple of things about it. 
Firstly, it comes to a man named Joseph. Now, is that surprising, unusual? No, he's not the first man in the Bible to have had experience with God speaking through through dreams. Back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, we're introduced to Abraham's family, who Jesus is going to be the heir of, but Abraham's grandson was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph, who would be the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Joseph... Uh, had all sorts of dreams as God spoke to him and he became an interpreter of dreams for other people, very famous uh, for it. And uh, he, uh, he, 2,000 years later or so, another Joseph comes along who's also the son of another Jacob and we're having dreams again, dreams that are a word from the Lord. It's not a coincidence and it's part of the new start. It's, it's this new genesis that Matthew is showing to us. Dreams are, are not the usual way that God communicates with people. You want to know what God says consistently, reliably, authoritatively, you go to the scriptures. This is God's word for us. Now, uh, d- can God communicate through dreams? Sure he can. He's God. He can do what he likes. Does he promise that he will do that? Is it the normal way he does it? No, it's not. Should we expect God to communicate to us through our dreams? No, we shouldn't. Could he? Yes. Should we expect it? Not at all. So why this dream? Why this man? Why this moment? Because it relates to the coming of the son of Abraham, the son of David. And Joseph is the man through whom the family line connects back to both those gentlemen. And And Joseph's about to make a decision that's going to put paid to all that. So the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to him in the dream and assures him that his betrothed pregnancy is not the result of sin. In fact, she's pregnant with the one who will come to save us from our sins. It's not the result of sin. She's come, she's pregnant to the one who will save us from our sins. Which is why Joseph is told to name the boy who is to raise his son, uh, Jesus. Why Jesus? Well, because Jesus is a Greek name. It's a, it's the same as Joshua in Hebrew. The same, you know, Joshua who was there in the Old Testament led him into the promised land. But when you translate that name, Jesus in Greek, Joshua in Hebrew, in English it means God saves. Literally it means Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yahweh is salvation. How does Joseph respond to this dream from God? Well, we're told he's a righteous man. He loves God. And so what does he do? He obeys it. Despite the difficulty that might bring him and Mary and, you know, the gossip, he, he, he takes Mary as his wife. And though they don't consummate the marriage until after the child is born and then they resume normal relations. You can read about Jesus, brothers and sisters. Uh, she didn't stay a virgin after Jesus was born. But why did all that happen that way? Well, we're told that it's to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. You see it in verse 22. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they'll name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Now, Joseph doesn't know that. He just obeys. But Matthew is telling us that this 
event, this moment, is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Isaiah was going around 730 BC, hundreds of years before Jesus came along. He, he was a prophet who God sent to Israel into pretty dark times. And we heard that, that particular prophecy read in our first reading, how, how the virgin was going to give birth and the child would be known as, not wouldn't be his name, but he'd be known as Emmanuel. So this wasn't a random event. God didn't have to sort of shoehorn Jesus into the family tree somehow and, and it was a last minute thing and kind of how are we going to do this? Well, hang on, uh, uh, Mary, oh, but she's, she's not married yet. Oh, well, let's... Uh, no, he foretold of this event so that when it happened later in history, it, it would be unmistakable. But that brings us to the twist, and I reckon it's a doozy. Because you reflect for even just a moment on Isaiah's prophecy in its own context, and it seems to have little or nothing to do with the future coming of a saviour or a king or the start of a new genesis or the year of jubilee. In fact, as he says it, he's speaking about another virgin and another child and another king. He's speaking about local events at the time. See, Ahaz was the king of Judah at the time. And he was a particularly rotten one. He was a bad king. He was wicked to the core. Uh, he desecrated the temple. He removed the altar of sacrifice from the temple to his own palace so the people could sacrifice to him instead of to God. Uh, he, he set up altars to all the different pagan gods in every high place all across the country. Uh, and so he was involved in all kinds of idolatrous worship that the God... Uh, his God had, had said, no way, it's, that's gone, that's evil. And, and most wicked of all, he even sacrificed his own son uh, as a human sacrifice, uh, burn him alive or burn him to death in the, the stomach of the, the god Moloch, in the statue of Moloch. But during his reign, he was approached by his two neighbouring nations, by Aram off to just to the east and Israel up north, the kind of rebellious tribes after the civil war. And they asked him to join forces and to go to war with them against the superpower of the time that was Assyria. Uh, Assyria, it's a bit like if Tasmania and Queensland came to Black Gladys Berejiklian and said, you know what, New South Wales should go to war with us uh, against the USA. Come on, we can do it. Right? Tasmania, Queensland, New South Wales together, we can take them. It's, it's that kind of insanity that the neighbours are suggesting. There's no way they should be able to win. But if, I suppose they think if they get enough support, maybe they'll be able to pull off an unexpected victory. But they say to him, if, if you don't join us, we're going to smash you on our way to smashing Assyria. And so Ahaz is stuck in this Bind. He's got this terrible situation. You know, do I, do I go with my neighbors who are going to attack me, uh, otherwise against him, the, you know, them, or do I, uh, that'll mean that they will come and crush us, or do I say to Assyria, well, these guys are conspiring against you, and so I'll join forces with you, but then become a vassal state. I mean, he's in this predicament. Uh, into the situation, God sends the prophet Isaiah with a message that Aram and Israel will not win. 
They might make war against you, Ahaz, but they are not going to win. God is going to see to it. It will not take place. It will not happen, are the words of his prophecy. And Ahaz is told by the prophet to ask for a sign, but he refuses him. He he tries to sound pious as he does it. Oh no, that would be wrong of me to do. I I will not put the Lord, my God, to the test. That would be a terrible thing to do. As if the man who abandoned the God of Israel and sacrificed his own son to another God and, and took God's altar and had people sacrifice to him really cares about what Yahweh thinks. But Isaiah responds with these devastating words. Verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son and name him Emmanuel. What will the sign mean? Well, verse 15, by the time the child learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he'll be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people and your father's house such a time as has never been seen since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. What is the sign of Emmanuel about? Who is the virgin? Who's this child known as Emmanuel? And when is it going to happen? Well, Isaiah is talking about, in the first instance, a child born in his day, a child born as a sign to King Ahaz. And, and the virgin turns out to be his own wife, Isaiah's wife. He was married to a child bride. Now, they'd had a child before, Sheer Jashub, who's mentioned he's there, standing there, as Isaiah gives this prophecy to Ahaz. So she's not a virgin in the sense of never had sexual relations, but she's a virgin in the sense meaning young lady. Uh, he had a child bride who he had this son with. And, and what will the sign mean, the sign of this child that is called Emmanuel? Well, because the important thing about signs is not the sign itself, but what the sign points to, what it indicates. And what will this child to Isaiah's wife called Emmanuel mean? What will it point to? What will it indicate? It will mean the total devastation of Judah. Don't fear those other two bozos, those local kings, they're nothing. But you should be afraid of the king of Assyria because I'm sending Assyria in to destroy you and your kingdom, Ahaz. Emmanuel, God with us, isn't a sign of hope and comfort. It's a sign of God's judgment And so you come across to Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 3, just over the page. Verse 3, I was then intimate with the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said to me, name him Mahashalal Hashbaz. What a name. For before the boy knows how to call father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be called off to the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because these people, your people, King Ahaz, your people, as I have rejected the flowing, the slowly flowing water of Shiloh and rejoiced with Risen and the, the son of Ramalia, they're the other two kings. The Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty 
rushing water of the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria in all of his glory. It will overflow its channel and spill over its banks. I will pour into Judah, flood over it and sweep through, reaching up to the neck and its flooded banks will fill your entire land. Emmanuel, God with us in judgment to destroy. Band together, verse 9, peoples and be broken. Pay attention, all you distant lands. Prepare for war and be broken. Prepare for war and be broken. Devise a plan. It will not fail. Make a prediction. It will not happen. For God is with us. For Emmanuel is here. He is here in judgment to destroy. God is with us. It is not a comforting word. He is here to destroy. For what should humanity expect when it comes face to face with God? It it should expect to be destroyed. We should expect to be destroyed for how we've treated him. We are rebels. We've stuck it to God. We don't care what he says. We we may not be Ahaz in that, that kind of sense of worshipping pagan gods and sacrificing our children, but we certainly haven't lived for God and thanked him. But that's the story of the Bible right from Genesis on. We've all traded God for an idol. We cannot stand before God. To do that would mean disaster. Isaiah himself when he saw in a vision just the tip of the train of God's robe in his temple in heaven, he cried out, he fell on his face as though dead. Woe to me, he cried out, I am ruined. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Almighty. And so here's the twist of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew says this is to fill what the Lord has said through the prophet of virgin birth, the sign of Emmanuel, who's the child. But yet this Emmanuel is coming not to destroy. He's coming to save. Though he'll be known as Emmanuel because this is God come in person, conceived of the Holy Spirit. This is not the child of another human father. You're to name him Jesus because God is going to save his people from their sins It's the exact opposite of what Isaiah was talking about in his prophecy. God coming, but God coming to destroy. No, no, God is coming, but he's coming to bring salvation. He's coming to to liberate. He's coming to save his people from their sins, not to destroy them for their sins. That is to say, when Matthew talks about Jesus fulfilling prophecy, He's not saying that Jesus is coming to tick off boxes, a list of random statements that he just had to fulfill, as if the Old Testament is made up as this great long checklist of kind of, here's the 380 or so things to look for so that you'll know when the Saviour arrives and tick, 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 Bethlehem, tick, you know, Emmanuel, tick, you know. It's not like that. No, no, Jesus is the fulfilment in a much deeper sense. He, he's fulfilling not just the letter of the predictions, which he does do, but he's the fulfillment in the sense that he is the exact opposite of what Israel or Judah or their kings were at the time the prophecy was made. Here is a king who is not like King Ahaz, who is his forebear. This one is righteous rather than wicked. And, and he is God with us, not in judgment, but for salvation. 
when all we should expect is God's wrath, Jesus comes to bring mercy and forgiveness and restoration. This is the new Genesis. And the same twist happens again and again throughout Matthew. And I'm just going to whip through the other three scenes of Jesus' childhood in chapter 2. So I can show you very, very quickly the kind of thing, but I may pay some research. You should always go and check out what the preacher's saying. Just take it for granted. Because uh, you know, this is the word of God, not what I say, but what this says. And so you know, find out. The second scene then involves the Magi. There's not three of them. Uh, there's, we're not told how many. Uh, they're not kings. Uh, so that, that's a sort of myth that we've grown up with because of our nostalgia. And, and they're not particularly wise men at all. In fact, they're unwise. They're unwise because they're astrologers. Uh, they're pagan nature worshippers who thought you could understand and, and read the divine through omens. Omens in the natural world around them. And that is a very foolish thing to do. It is condemned in scripture. It is the height of apostasy. It's a rejection of God. And yet that's what they do. And it's foolish because it doesn't work either. And they see what they think is a particularly propitious omen, a star. Now, who knows what it was? We're not told what it is, but they witnessed it. And to them, it was such an indication of greatness that they dropped everything and rode halfway across the known world, guess where from, from over Assyria way, no less, to find a king who'd been born. They go to the current king on his throne, that's Herod the Great, who was a paranoid, barbarous man. He, he had his own sons murdered while he was on his deathbed because he thought they were plotting against him, uh, as if they could do that. But they, they tell him the sign and his jealousies aroused, but he pretends to be a good guy, but he's thinking a newborn king, I'm the king and no one's going to take that away from me. He pretends to be nice. He gets his court advisors to go and check out the scriptures and see you know, if there's a prediction about where the king will be born, where he might come from. And they come back and they say, yes, Bethlehem, that's the place that God had ordained. And so he says, well, go find him and, and then come back and tell me so I can come and worship him too. They go, they do find him, and they give him their gifts in adoration and worship. They are gifts that are fit for the king. They are absolutely sold out. The sign, whatever it was that they followed, was so overwhelming that this is the one. He is the king, the king of kings. You abandon your own king and come over here to another nation to come bow before him and offer your everything. Gifts fit for royalty. But then we're told that there's another unexpected dream where God speaks again to avert a disaster. Verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Again, it's in fulfillment of the prophets. This time it's the prophet Micah from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. He will be born in Bethlehem. But you go and look up Micah in chapter 5 and again there is a huge twist. For when was Micah going? When was he prophesying? It turns out exactly the same time as Isaiah was. And who was he speaking to? King Ahaz. What was his message? His message was the next king after you, Ahaz, will rise up to defeat the Assyrians after you and the nation have been punished. A king born in Bethlehem. And who was the next king? It was King Hezekiah. 
And what happened? Assyria had all but won. They had conquered not just those two other nations, they had wiped out and burned to the ground every city in Judah. There was one city left standing, Jerusalem. King Hezekiah was on his throne. He was shaking at the knees. He knew the judgment of God had come. They had taken everything and the 180,000 Assyrian troops, the mightiest army ever formed, was camped around the walls and there was no escape. They were besieged. And yet Hezekiah, for the first time in several generations of kings, turns to God in prayer and he begs for mercy. And that night the angel of the Lord goes out and puts to death all 180,000 of the soldiers. They all just die. They're miraculously saved. The commander of their army is the only one left. He goes home and he's killed. But Hezekiah, he's not the saviour in the end. He prayed and salvation came, but, and while he was a better king than, than the ones before him, he, he still ends up being an utter fool who sells the nation out. He betrays them and he thinks he's done a really wise and good thing. You can read about that in Isaiah 38 and 39. But Jesus comes in fulfillment, but again with this great twist. He's a king not come to throw off the shackles of the invading army but by laying their troops to death and destroying the Romans or anything like that. He's not here as a warrior at all. No, he's here born in Bethlehem in order to save, not by slaughtering the enemies, but as it turns out, by being the one who's hunted and killed. That's how he will save. He will die for our sins. Third scene then. Herod's enraged at being tricked and in his furious jealousy he orders the massacre of every child two years and younger in the vicinity of Bethlehem which tells you something about when the Magi turned up. It wasn't while Jesus was in the manger. It's brutal and it is vicious. It is... uh, The barbarity is, is astounding. But again a dream comes. Joseph's told by an angel in a dream to take Mary and the child Jesus and to flee to Egypt which he does. Again, we're told it's to fulfill prophecy. This time, Hosea 11. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But again, a radical twist. Because you go and read Hosea chapter 11 and it's not even a prediction of the future. It's not about the future at all. It's about the past. It's a reflection on the history of Israel. Hosea 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. He's reflecting back on the time of the Exodus, hundreds of years before, when they'd been slaves in captivity in to Pharaoh, and through Moses who'd led them out, they were rescued with great salvation, miracles and things. Out of Egypt I called my son, but Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols and he goes on through the rest of the chapter to describe just how wicked God's son the nation of Israel who he'd saved out of Egypt had had become and they still were when was Hosea going bet you can guess now during the reign of King Ahaz and so here's the twist again Jesus is the fulfillment in that he, he's coming out of Egypt 
not to tick off another checklist box that had to happen. No, he's coming out of Egypt to be what Israel should have been, but never was. He, he will come out of Egypt, but he won't be the disobedient son who, who worships foreign gods, who bows down to false things. And we're going to see that even in the next couple of chapters as, as Dave picks up the temptations in the desert and things next week. Uh, he, but he's not going to be the disobedient son. He, he's not destined to be punished for his own sin. He'll be the perfectly obedient son that Israel never was and he will pay for our sins. It's the same again in the fourth scene, the dream Joseph's told. It's all clear. It's safe to return. Those who were seeking the child are now dead. You're safe. He moves the family, not back to Bethlehem where the child was born, but up north to Galilee to a town called Nazareth. It's kind of like if we were to pack up and move to Gympie in Queensland. Uh, uh, you know, weird Hicksville with strange hippies and you know, in the midst of a whole state of people who we're kind of embarrassed that we're connected to somehow as part of the same country. Uh, the fulfillment. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. The twist. There is no such prophecy. There is no such prediction in the Old Testament. It's just not there. At least it's not there as a direct quote. Now, people have tried to uh, work out if he's mismatched a couple of things. Maybe he confused the word Nazarite in the law with Nazarene as if they were somehow the same group of people, but they're not connected at all. And so maybe Matthew's made this terrible blunder. But notice, it's not the word of the prophet or the prophet so-and-so as it has been with every other case. No, it's to fulfill the words of the prophets. That is, there's something about being known as a Nazarene which accords with what God has been working towards and planning and which he has spoken through through all of the prophets. It's not a direct quote that he's fulfilling. So what is it about Nazareth that's so special? Why is a Nazarene significant? Well, there's nothing special about it. It's, well... You might think of an alternate phrase, but it's the, it's the rear end of the world. Uh, later on, when people find out that Jesus comes from Nazareth, they say, Nazareth? What good could come from Nazareth? Uh, that's, that's Loserville. That's Lamo. That's, that's nowhere. That's Gimpy. Which is exactly what the prophets did predict about the Savior. For example, Isaiah 53 and verse 2. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. But he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. The Saviour who is coming is not someone glorious. It is not someone spectacular. It's not someone who's head and shoulders above everyone else like King Saul was. The reason they chose him as king was because he was so tall, the tallest man they'd ever met till that point. Wow, he's got to be king. No, he's not impressive. He, he's from Nazareth. 
He's that kind of guy. He's, he's a nobody. Despised, rejected because of his background, rejected because of his teaching, rejected because of everything about him in the end. That is the saviour that God is sending. One who is totally unexpected, exactly the opposite to everything you might imagine. He's a Nazarene kind of person, a, a nothing from nowhere. And so here is Jesus coming Uh, It's the coming of the one who is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's coming to bring the new Genesis, the new beginning, and he's the exact opposite of everything that's gone beforehand and he's going to bring the opposite from the hand of God as a result. He is going to bring blessing and not a curse. He is Emmanuel, God with us, not come in judgment but come to save us from our sins. He's not the baby of nostalgia to be kind of smiled at and cooed. He's the king who's come to save. He's not someone to be embarrassed about or to cover up like Joseph wanted to do. He is to be embraced and loved. He's not someone you can destroy or overthrow no matter how hard you try or how much you might feel threatened by him or how much you want to build your own little kingdom as Herod did. He is someone to recognise and bow the knee to as king in worship and in service and in sacrifice, in fact to sacrifice everything for. He is the one because he came to sacrifice his life for us. He is the king. He is the master. If there's anyone in this whole set of events to be like, it's the Magi. We might be pagan outsiders to God's Old Testament people. That may be true. But they, in the end, they knew what to do. As they came and they offered their lives and their gifts and they bowed down in worship to the one born to be king, the one who was born to save. They may not have been wise men before they came and did that. In fact, they were fools caught up in stupid idolatry and in worshipping things of their own invention. But they were certainly wise by the end. The question I have for you is, are you wise like they became? Do you recognise Jesus? Do you recognise that he is the one? He is the one Come to save, have you bowed your knee before him, before the king, before the master? Jesus, God saves. Emmanuel, God with us. Father, we thank you that you had all of this planned out beforehand that nothing has taken you by surprise and through hundreds of thousands of years you you made it all happen and totally unexpectedly to anything we might have looked for or hoped for, but Jesus comes, though he's unexpected, he comes meeting our greatest needs. He comes as the king, he comes as the saviour. And so we thank you for your mercy that you have not visited us in judgment like you did King Ahaz, though we might deserve it. We thank you, you have come in mercy to this world. Not to punish for us for our sins, but to die for our sins. And so, Father, we pray that we might be those who bow the knee to Jesus, that we might 
offer everything that we've got to him in service, in love, in worship. That you might change our lives each day and help us not to live in rebellion against you, but to live for you, to be proud of our king and our master, to live for him. Help us to be like the wise men. Help us to have a wisdom that this world does not understand and does not know. And we pray that you might glorify yourself in us as we receive the salvation that Jesus has come to give us and as we give our lives to you. Father, we pray for our world in rebellion and in darkness that it might see this light of the truth of the glory of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and turn in obedience to him and bow the knee as well. We pray that for our friends. We pray that for our neighbours. We pray that for our city and our nation. We pray that for our premiers and for our um, our prime minister. We pray it for uh, the countries around about us that they might turn and give their lives to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.